welcome to the Common Table Podcast. I'm your host, Pastor Chris Miller. I believe that each of us has an interesting story worth sharing. Each week, I'll be joined at the table by a guest, and we'll talk about where they've been, where they're going, and where they find hope along the way. So pull up a chair, and welcome to the Common Table. Today I'm joined by Reed Dressler, who is one of the staff members here at Trinity, just wrapping up his time with us, working with our kids and our youth. And Reed, I'm, I'm real delighted that you're here with us today. Yeah, I'm, I'm thankful to be here too. It's great to talk to you. So I want to lead off with this question that I, I usually ask all of our guests. If you wrote a book, what would that book jacket bio say about you? That's a hard one, but hopefully something along the lines of husband, cat dad, uh, former youth minister now, also worked as a domestic violence victim advocate at a domestic violence shelter who got a bachelor's degree in philosophy and theology and a master's of theological studies. Very good. I think that's a pretty good summation of, of what I know about you. Yeah, I, I hope so. Anyway, <laughs> at least the bare bones of what I have done. <laughs> sure, sure. So you did your college and grad work at Southwest Baptist. Is that right? Yeah, I did my college degree at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri, which is where my family, a lot of my family anyway, lives. My parents and my grandparents on my mom's side live. And then I got my master's degree at Phillips Theological Seminary, which is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Right. That's right. And that's affiliated with the Disciples of Christ. Is that right? Correct. Yep. Yeah. Uh, okay. It's a great little seminary that is pretty inclusive to all denominations. And there's a wide variety of people that go there. Nice. Well, good. Well, it's so good to hear a little bit of your story. And I want to jump back, you know, a year or 10 or 20. Okay. <laughs> ask about your earliest memory of church or faith. You know, what are some of those early memories for you? What are some of those foundational life experiences around the church or your faith? Yeah, as I try to dig back into my memory, I have just a snippet of a memory going back from when I was maybe four or five. And we were at this independent church in New Jersey and they had a flannel graph, one of those flannel graphs. And I think they were doing the King David story where they put the little characters that are made of flannel onto this perfectly green backdrop of flannel. And they try to teach the stories through that. And that memory has really stuck out with me my whole life because every time I watch the VeggieTales episode about King David, they mention the flannel graph. And so I can't not remember that one. What do you remember seeing on that? You know, what flannel pieces were there? I, I don't remember too well, but I remember some sheep on there and I remember... A couple of characters. I can just remember mostly the green backdrop and being in a very normal church room, though the building was much bigger than a lot of buildings I normally have been in for a church. I remember that much. Well, this is an early one that I'm excavating. I think a lot of us have had those Sunday school experiences you know, very specifically with the flannel board, right? That that feels like something that is a pretty consistent element of memory, at least for folks that had some of that early childhood, you know, vacation Bible school and Sunday school, just the ever-present visual aid. Yeah, there's something so entrancing about it. And I, I think it's because it's not just flat. So like a whiteboard is, you know, usually just this flat, if you're lucky, statically white thing. But the flannel graph, because it's made up of all these little strands, you can 
just kind of stare at it forever and notice all the little strands. And there's usually parts of it missing if they've had it for any amount of time. And the characters pop from it in a way that it just really sticks out no matter no matter what. I will always remember the flannel graph, even if I don't remember any of the details around it. it it's lodged into my memory. Yeah. I think one of the things that it represents for me is, you know, because in general, those are handmade, right? There's something that the people of the church of that particular church, you know, someone sat down and cut out the sheep and, and the, the characters and all the bits. And they represent the love and care that goes into telling our story. Yeah. I think there's a certain level where, the more imperfect it is because it's been, you know, made by members of the church rather than one that's been just purchased, gives it a textile and memorable quality. And it's it's really easy to move away from that in today's day and age, I think. And there's nothing wrong with buying materials for a church. And it can even give your church a sort of feeling of credibility but there's also something really nice about having these somewhat imperfect but personal elements in a church. So you have an early memory of faith in, you know, in seeing this flannel graph and seeing this telling of the biblical story. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your the experience of faith growing up. You know, what kind of a church did you grow up in? What was that like? What were some of the core messages, experiences of your childhood faith? After New Jersey, because again, I don't really remember that period too well. I guess we went to some sort of independent church. Maybe it was Baptist. I'm not even sure. But when I was around getting into first grade, we moved to Bolivar, Missouri, and my mother had me go to this private Christian school. It's an evangelical private Christian school because she didn't have a great time in public school. Now she is very Pentecostal. She's very assembly of God, praying in tongues, all those things. My father's not really religious at all. And my grandparents are very Baptist. So it worked out for them and her to have me go to this private Christian school. And that pretty much functioned as my church experience for much of my life, I was able to convince my mother very early on that since I was spending five days a week at this private Christian school, having to do Bible classes, having to do chapel, that I didn't also need to go on Sundays. She thought that was persuasive. Some of my friends weren't able to get away with that, but I was able to convince my own parents. And this place was rather conservative in its theology, which very early on, I resisted. I remember very vividly one of my teachers saying that all Catholics went to hell. And I think I was in second or third grade, but I, I immediately said, that just doesn't sound right because I was a history buff. And I noticed that a lot of Christian history is made up of just the Catholic church or, or mostly the Catholic church. So would God have left everyone that whole time? That didn't make any sense to me. So a lot of my background was in this very conservative theologically system that I, I would resist against. And it had much more of a Baptist atmosphere to it, which even my mother resisted a bit because she's, again, Pentecostal. And she's willing to be a bit eccentric in her Pentecostal views. So she was always willing to, what you could say, is allow the Holy Spirit to challenge what others were telling her were true. So she has a lot of different views that I don't think even an Assembly of God church would be okay with, but that are pretty reasoned out. And I think that allowed me to also think about my faith in interesting ways. And so from first grade to eighth grade, I was at this private Christian school and I made a lot of great friends. I had a hard time in middle school with it because there were only about 10 of us and a bunch of them did not like me. I was kind of a huge nerd, so I was made fun of a lot for that. I didn't have a lot of a social sphere to break out from that either. So it was it was good to get to public school. And then during my time in high school, 
in the public schooling. I researched quite a bit on my religious faith and what I wanted to believe about God. So I studied a lot of Catholic thinkers. One of my guitar teachers, he got his degree in philosophy and theology at Southwest Baptist University. And his father was a big uh, New Testament scholar there. And so guitar classes became more about talking about theology. And that was sort of how I was able to shape my faith and move from a really evangelical, sometimes very conservative theological background to uh, progressive, in some ways, theology and a mainline theology, one that would work with a Presbyterian church or Disciples of Christ. If you were to think about core theological messages that you got in those early years in that private school, you mentioned the view that even Christians with a different kind of theological language were, were going to go to hell, right? What were some other things that would stand in contrast from the beliefs of that time to kind of where you are at this point in your life? They were very hell-driven, and they had certain things that I think a lot of people that have interacted with evangelical Christianity would be familiar with. Uh, Jesus dies for your sins, and when he dies for your sins, you have to accept him into your heart or you go to hell, and it's very transactional. It's a substitutionary idea of atonement, that that's how God saves you from God's own wrath towards you. So God needs to be convinced to love you by becoming Christian. And I think that there are ways to formulate that view that could even be healthy, but the ways I was experiencing it there, I found to be completely unhealthy. So that was a major one. The idea that the Bible is quote unquote inerrant, you know, there are no errors. And by errors, we mean it is 100% accurate in its understanding of science, history, and theology, and that being true of all of it. And I was taught the Bible that way. And to be quite honest, I thought the Bible was extremely boring with that understanding. As you're given one reading of it, it's usually one of the stories that you're more familiar with. And we went over them so many times. Or you memorize a Bible passage. And usually I try to memorize them about five minutes before the due time. And it worked out really well. I actually got very good at memorizing things, which helped me in speech and debate later on in life. And anyway, with the Bible being totally free of errors, there's no real room for critical thinking in my mind. So what I like about what I believe now is that the Bible is inspired but that it is a collection of inspired stories and poems and myths and metaphors and an attempt from different people across thousands of years to try to make sense of who God is to them and what it is that God wants from them or what they want from God. And that that's what the Bible is, is something that is for a long time wrestling over those questions. That's a really helpful shift in perspective, I think. At least it sure felt that way for me. <laughs> sure. So thinking about that, that shift from a very literal, inerrant view of Scripture to one where we're more open to the movement of the Holy Spirit in our understanding and seeing the movement of the Spirit through, through the Word of God. Is there a particular passage or story or narrative in scripture that stands out to you either as a personal favorite or one where you've seen that change maybe bring a change in understanding bring new light or life to to scripture yeah so i thought about this a lot i was trying to come up with one and the problem was that the one that kept coming to mind i thought i don't know if i should use that because it's such an odd story, but I couldn't shake it. I think it might actually be my favorite passage of scripture. And it's because it's so odd. It's not one that you're usually told, or it's, it's certainly not one that people talk about that often. 
And I think it is a great example of where there's a lot of room for understanding and there's a lot of room to try to make sense of it. And I think it helps make sure that the Bible stays something of a mystery because I truly believe it's the strangest passage. It's in 1 Kings, it's 1 Kings chapter 13. And a lot of times when people talk about the weird things of the Bible, they might say, well, how does God get two of every animal on an ark? Or, wow, have you read the book of Revelation? There's some odd stuff there. But I don't really think that stuff's the, the strangest. I think this passage is. And it's about the, the man of God from Judah. So it's in the Old Testament. And Israel is breaking apart. They used to be solidified one kingdom, but they're breaking apart. And there's an evil king, Jeroboam or at least he's not a great king, Jeroboam. And he is creating an altar to someone other than the Israelite God. So the man of God is sent by God, and he calls out the altar. And not only that, but he makes Jeroboam's arm shrivel up with his calling out. So Jeroboam, you know, recants what he's done, and the man of God goes on his way. And while he's on his way, he runs into a man who claims to be a prophet. And the prophet's like, oh, you're a man of God? Well, why don't you come to my house? I'd love to have you over. And the man of God says, well, no, no, uh, God told me that I can't stay anywhere. I can't stop in my journey. It would be completely wrong. God has been very clear on this. I have to keep going. And the prophet lies to him and says, God told me that you can come stay with me. And so the man of God's like, well, if God said so, I guess that's great. So he stays with the man of, uh, with this prophet. The man of God stays with the prophet. And then in his sleep, God presents to the man of God a vision that because he has not listened to God, he is going to be punished. And so the man of God gets up, he realizes the mistake he's made, he goes on his way, and he's killed on his way, I think by a lion. And the prophet looks at that event, and he says, wow, he really must have been a man of God. He wasn't lying. He really got killed for not listening to God. That's great. He's, he truly is a man of God. So his bones will reside with my ancestors, because he truly was a man of God. And then that's the end of the story. And the book of Kings moves on completely, goes back to the story of all the other kings of Israel. And that's it. That's the man of God story. I find it so strange because it kind of comes out of nowhere and it ends. And then the book moves on. So if you were going to preach a sermon on that, what would, what would be your takeaway? To be honest, I could probably preach like a thousand sermons on it because there's just so much in there. I think there's a million questions that one could ask, but I think at the heart of it, the question is, well, why is it in here? And I've heard scholars say, maybe it's to prove that all this stuff in the book is, is true that it happened because, well, why would you have this tangent? It's to prove that the man of God, you know, is really the man of God. And so what Jeroboam and the other kings are doing is wrong. But what I love about it is that it's so mysterious and that it's so strange and that it doesn't make a ton of narrative sense because I think it reminds us that the Bible is not some sort of textbook that you could just memorize the answers of and you're good to go. The, the Bible is made up of all these stories and books and poems that are so complicated and there's so much room for meaning and to make sense of it and interpretation. And it's not something that you can just say, well, the Bible says this, because sometimes the Bible has these odd stories that are complicated and hard. It's a reminder to be kind to other people with the Bible, because we're all just trying to make sense of it. If you're a Christian and you 
want to make sense of it, that it's not something that's just easily understood. So it reminds you to, I guess, be a little humble too in your making sense of it. it it's a story that demands the meaning not be given to you immediately. And I think that it demands of us that we be careful with the Bible and, and read the Bible and be humble with it. I think that's a really good message. The idea of being gentle with how we use the Bible with other people. I really like that. Yeah. I think that's been one of the things that if you were to ask me, what is my life's experience with Christianity and with the Bible? That would be what I hope I have maybe not always successfully done, but learned at least to do is to be careful with it and to try to be understanding with others about it. I think that's a good goal for a lot of us. I think there's a temptation, especially with those of us that have grown up in the faith, to assume that we understand and to sometimes then use that understanding to achieve our own aims without pausing to see if those aims really line up with the message of the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. And it happens regardless of how much knowledge you have about the Bible. I mean, if all you know is a couple verses, well, those verses can be a club which you use on others. And if you know a ton, well, then you can just use that vast knowledge on others. And so no matter where you're at, that is always a danger. I remember hearing, I think I could be wrong on this. So if anyone's listening, they can double check. But the Trappist monk Thomas Merton, who is pretty popular, in certain circles at least, he said that it might be a good idea to keep the Bible out of people's hands until they're about 30 because it's such a dangerous tool. And I wouldn't go that far, but I think his point is just, if you're going at it from all ego, the Bible is one of the most dangerous things possible because you can get it to say whatever you want and it can always be on your side. I'm going to go out on a limb and say there wasn't a lot of quotation of Merton at your private school growing up. There was not. No, he was one of those people <laughs> I found out about in college, not even college, in high school. Yeah, he was during the Catholic phase. I'm a big, I'm a big Merton fan, though I haven't read a lot of his works all the way through, unfortunately. That's something I probably need to do one of these days. But I do love the life of Merton and the example he set, and also some of his major teachings. Well, and I think that's been a growth point for me is reading people outside of my own tradition and reading theologians and scholars and preachers and everyday people that come from different perspectives because it helps broaden your horizon on thinking about faith. And sometimes you go, well, I can see why they came to that conclusion, but I don't agree. And it helps reinforce my own beliefs. And sometimes it challenges my own beliefs. And I think that's a really important thing that we should be doing in our faith is not just saying, well, you know, the doctrine of my church teaches X and then accept that you know, lock, sock, and barrel instead of going, okay, well, what else is out there and seeking to understand? Absolutely. Like you said, you know, you're not always going to agree with the stuff that you find out of your tradition, but sometimes it's good to know why you don't agree with it. Right. And I have read things that were attacking other religious traditions or just totally other religions that it was very clear that they just didn't even have a basic knowledge of the thing they were attacking. And it also seemed clear that they had no desire to learn about that. And sometimes these were in books that were written to teach others about how to, you know, convert people from that religion. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. it, it seems to me that they recognized that there was a danger to reading outside of their own tradition too, because the more you learn about other religions, the more nuanced I think you inherently become. 
about religions or traditions. And the more you have to say, well, I think I'm right, but could be wrong. And at the very least, I understand why these people believe what they do. So thinking about day-to-day life, you know, just the ordinary moments of, of life, what role does your faith play as, as you go from day to day? You know, what does that look like? How does it influence the way you go through the world? Yeah, that's a great question because it's not one that I could pinpoint on any one specific thing. I like to believe that my faith functions as a sort of guiding star in a lot of ways. And sometimes that's as simple as believing that all people have this inherent worth to them because they're they're made in the image of God. They bear something essential and important. And maybe this is true of all creation as well. So I like to think that even my interactions with people, I'm attempting to live that out just being kind when I can. But at the same time, because our faith is such a complicated thing, I also believe that sometimes it demands that we take a stand for what we believe is right. And it calls us into a place that's not as safe as we would like, a place that maybe challenges our status, our wealth, or our privilege, so to say or our comfort, the status quo. And I think that I always want to be looking for how can I be kind and loving and following the example of Jesus Christ? But then how am I also following the example of Jesus Christ by honestly challenging the things that hurt people? I think it's a challenge for a lot of us to look at our lives and to say, these are my core beliefs, and how do I enact those beliefs in ways that accurately reflect my faith? And yeah. you know, and what do you do when you realize, oh, you know, I have benefited. You know, you know, to put a fine point on it, right? You know, for me as a middle class white American male. You know, I have benefited tremendously from generation upon generation of privilege that is baked into who I am. None yeah. of which I set out to earn or to achieve for myself. It, it's just, I have these benefits. I have these privileges. And to work for a society where those privileges don't mean as much or where we work for equality necessarily means a society where I don't have as much privilege. Yeah, absolutely. And, and doing those things in a healthy and productive way, because I've, I've seen a lot of times where people that are well-meaning on that can take some of the other toxicities in their life and bring them to that table. And I think that's an incredibly difficult balancing act of how do I make the world a better place and challenge these destructive systems without being destructive myself. And I don't pretend to do that perfectly at all because it's one of the hardest things and I mess up on that constantly. But I think that they can complement each other perfectly too. Say more about that. Well, I really like, as I mentioned, Thomas Merton, well, someone else that I really like is Richard Rohr. And Mm. he's in a similar vein. He's another Catholic figure. So I hope that the Presbyterians of Trinity don't get too mad at me for mentioning all these Catholics. But Richard Rohr is actually, I think, one of the most influential writers and speakers and thinkers on my life. And his main point that he likes to make is he believes in action and contemplation. And by contemplation, he means the practice of bettering oneself through different things. Sometimes it's meditation. He loves the Enneagram because it helps one see 
where they have their strengths and their weaknesses. So there's the one side of personal development, you could say self-care, but also self-development and change. And then on the other side, there's the larger national worldwide changes and the actions taken to fix the systems that hurt and oppress people. And he believes these two things need to be put together for them to be successful. Because it's very easy on the one hand to draw two inward and to make the changes to oneself really just about oneself, which would be self-serving in its own right. But then on the other hand, it's very easy to become so outwardly focused that the things inside of you that are not helpful, that are sometimes unhealthy and even potentially toxic or destructive, get spewed out into the world while you try to fix it. And so when you can combine these two elements together, you are creating the most change, not only in yourself, but also outwardly in the world. And I think that in a lot of ways, a healthy Christianity is one that is attempting to do that because we have the personage of Jesus, who is someone that gives advice both for the personal level and demands changes at the personal level, but then also calls out the wider sicknesses in the world. That model of inward change and outward action, I think is really helpful. And I wonder how does that, that model of inward change and outward action, how does that influence your ministry work? That's a great question. And it's one that I don't know that I've always balanced well. One of the things I tend to look at is I think that an essential part of any ministry work is looking at the context, the specifics of who you're working with. I don't believe that a one style ministry is helpful if you try to apply it to different groups because they have different needs, they have different personalities and wants and beliefs, and they're coming at things from different places. And I try to take all that into account, which means that I'm also, I'm often not doing a great job at it. But what I look for is, well, what does this group already focus on? What do they already believe? And where could they get better in one of these areas or both of these areas. So if a church is very focused on the outward changes of the world, which again, I think is great, I might look at ways that that group can do those things, but also perhaps more create inward change to help uh, complement those factors. And then vice versa. If a group is not necessarily going out and trying to create actions, or they don't seem to believe in that. I might work on doing those actions, but also seeing if we can develop our views to take with us for the rest of our lives that have to do with outward actions. So in listening to your story, you have been part of a number of different Christian communities, some of them by your own choice and some of them maybe not as much by your own choice. Yet you still continue to choose to be part of Christian communities. And so I wonder why, why is that important for you today? Why is it important that you remain connected with the church? Yeah, I think that's a great question because, you know, as you know very well, our culture is one that is slowly becoming less and less uh, enamored with the church and Christianity. And it's not like you can necessarily blame anyone for not wanting to be involved in Christianity when their experiences of it can be very unhealthy. But I still believe that there's something very useful in having a community that cares about you. And I think that a lot of people are beginning to sense a lack of community in their lives. 
So I think church is first off a great way to be connected with other people. You know, we're social beings. We are not solitary beings. I think a lot of people have really gotten to feel that with the pandemic, just how hard that is. I know I have. And so I think having a community is important. And I think that a Christian community at its very best is one that is always striving to be loving and loving of everyone, including the outsider. And that can be difficult because the people that are on the outside, our culture tends to have reasons for that. They're not great reasons, but it's because they tend to be harder to fit into the cultural community. And so there's naturally going to be some, not only differences of opinion, but even more generally differences of attitude and interactions. You know, maybe there are differences of socioeconomic, or maybe there are differences in personality or behaviors. And the more loving a community is, and the more willing it's, it is to bring those people in and to help them, or to just provide comfort for one another, I think that's a great thing that will pay dividends for the individuals in that community. But then again, also to the wider culture, because if you have a loving community that's bringing in people that might not fit in somewhere else, you're already beginning to change the individuals in that community and you're beginning to make changes on the outside world. And I like to think that a community like that is also a little more likely to take action to help fix some of the larger problems as well. And so I think that Christianity is such an essential part of our culture right now that it would be very unfortunate for people to give up on it in a holistic sense. Now, if one doesn't want to go to church, I don't blame them. I don't judge them. I don't try to shame them. But I look at our history, and yes, I see horrible acts committed by Christians in the name of Jesus, but I also see incredibly powerful acts committed in the name of Jesus. Martin Luther King Jr. is one of the most celebrated figures in our nation's history. It's hard to find someone who is willing to say they don't like him because we enshrine him so highly for the great work that he did. And he was a Christian minister who was giving sermons. His speeches were pretty much just sermons and he constructed them as such. And he used churches in the black community to organize people, to end segregation and to help fight white supremacy. So I think there's absolutely a good reason to stay in Christianity and to be a part of a Christian community. And it's for that loving, for that loving the neighbor and even loving the enemy and trying to create a better world for everyone. If you could go back in time, what is one piece of advice you would like to give your younger self? <laughs> Weirdly, it would probably be something like relax, which is odd if you know me well, because I'm not bad at taking time to relax, but I am really bad at relaxing when there is something that I think I need to do that's important. I am a very anxious person. I get stressed very easily. And I try to still give myself that advice. In fact, I would give that advice to my former self so that hopefully I would be better now at doing that. Mm. How does that usually play out for you? It's usually imagining all the ways something can go wrong and then having to remind myself, well, it's probably unlikely, but then thinking, well, but it could happen. And it can be on little things. And the ways something could go wrong could be any myriad of ways, but that tends to be the cause of it. So if there's something important, I can think about all the ways that I could fail at it, that it would be embarrassing or perhaps even life-threatening, depending on the issue. And unfortunately, what I can imagine is life-threatening 
can even come from small things. You know, it's like, I imagine a domino sequence of, well, but then that could lead to this, that could lead to that uh, sort of scenario. And those are very easy to play for my mind. And so that's why I'm often drawn to figures like Thomas Merton, Richard Rohr. I would also add even non-Christian figures like Eckhart Tolle or Byron Katie, who provide tools for being able to, you know, ask oneself about those things. Are they true? Do you really think it's going to happen? Is that even the worst thing in the world if such and such does happen? I can identify with that just a whole awful lot. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I've, I've recently, very recently got a little bit into the Enneagram and I don't, I don't think it's like pure psychology. I think it's still kind of useful. And I took the test and I got a six. I'm a six apparently, which is someone who sort of over plans on things and imagines all the ways it can go wrong and tends to rely on people they trust. Uh, pretty heavily. And, you know, it just, it kind of, it just felt true (laughs) to how I've lived my life that, you know, I'm good at sort of imagining all the ways something could go wrong, which is why I tend to rely on people that I trust deeply in everything. It makes sense then your interest in spiritual authors and theologians that are talking about ways that we can whether that's language around meditation or centering or just being in tune with God and the spirit, you know, ways to make sense and find inner peace. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really easy for us to imagine that, you know, our reasons for things are unknowable and that we are these totally rational beings that come to our decisions through logical steps. But at the end of the day, we often do have these underlying reasons because we're human, you know, and these underlying sometimes more emotional reasons for doing things or more relational reasons for doing things. And so absolutely, I think that my drive for looking into these figures comes from those emotional levels. Seeking to understand how, how and why we do the things we do. Yeah. And I think that realizing that has been one of the things that's helped me become a little bit better of a, a youth minister as well, because it's very easy for me to project onto others. Well, this is what you, you know, want or what you would need. And really, if I'm being totally honest, it's probably what I want or, what I need, you know, the deep theological discussions, of course, interest me, but they might not interest someone else and they may not be useful for them at that time in their life. So I try to be careful about overly applying my own wants and desires onto others. I think that's probably good wisdom for most anything in church and ministerial work. Not to, not to over apply our own, not to over apply our own brokenness to the system. Yeah. And I think that it's the most natural thing in the world to do. So, you know, it it shouldn't be too shocking when we do it or when we see others do it, you know, somehow we always get shocked by that, but we probably shouldn't be. Yeah. Humans can be more predictable than we, we might wish. Yeah. (laughs) So what is something interesting that most people don't know or might not know about you? I'm actually not just a movie buff, but a pretty big movie buff. And I go through phases on it, but sometimes I can be completely enamored with the history and the making of movies and all that goes into that. I do love listening to interviews with filmmakers or reading books about the making of a movie or the history of a certain genre, things of that nature. The the question that I'm drawn to is what is your favorite movie, but that might be an impossible question. So that is absolutely an impossible. So what is a movie lately 
that has really drawn your attention that you really enjoy? Yeah, so I just had Kenzie watch a movie that I love uh, called Being There. It came out in 1979. It had Peter Sellers as the main character. It was directed by Hal Ashby. Have you ever seen Being There? I have not. Okay. So the main premise is it's about this man who is a gardener for a very wealthy man. But when that that man dies, he finds himself in need for a life because he was living there. And he doesn't, he doesn't really think about things a lot. He just really likes to watch television, and that's about it. And he pretty much only knows about television and gardening. He accidentally finds himself in this high society, high culture, very wealthy world. And people keep reading into him what they think they want to read into him. So they'll ask him what he thinks about the economy. And he thinks they're asking about gardening. So he gives this long description about how it's important to water the plants or the roots are strong, then the garden will be strong. And people take from that this great wisdom on the economy. And they keep saying, wow, isn't he the wisest man you've ever met? Uh, (laughs) And they keep elevating his status and he doesn't even realize what's happening while they're doing that. And everyone's shocked by his just, you know, directness and his kindness and his ability to seemingly understand you. I love that image of someone speaking out of what they know and being able to help other people, even though they may not know that they're doing it. Yeah, it's 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 so funny, but it's it's this strangely. It's both incisive because it critiques America, at least in 1979, though I would say most of the critiques are still applicable uh, today. Because he, so there's a scene where he gets on television and he's doing that long winded story about the garden. And the woman that was the maid of the place that he was from, she's an African American woman and she sees him on TV and she's like, I raised that guy. And he, he's never thought about anything ever. All you have to do to get to the top is be white, which I think the movie is able to balance this incredible critique of white America. It's able to critique wealthy America. And yet at the same time, it's able to tell us something about ourselves and to show us a way that is sincere and kind and impactful. So I I love pretty much everything about the movie being there. You're wrapping up your time with us here at Trinity in the the next few days and are getting ready to go off on a fairly big adventure. And I wonder if you would tell us about that. Yeah, so my big adventure is I am about to go to basic training which should start on February 1st. I have joined the Army Reserve as a civil affairs specialist, which functions as the Army's liaison to local governments. One of the main things is making sure there's communication between the Army and a local government. They do quite a bit, but some of the roles are involved with disaster preparedness or disaster relief or food security, or it can be infrastructure related. There's a lot of different things that a civil affairs specialist can do. And my unit is specifically focused on the Indo-Pacific Command. So it's dealing with things in India and the Pacific in general, so a lot of Asia, So what led you to want to go do that kind of work? Well, it's funny. I've actually, for a lot of my life, I wanted to do something with the military. When I was a kid, if you asked me what I was going to do, it would be join the military. So for my parents, it actually wasn't as left field as it is for a lot of other people that know me. 
because I did high school junior ROTC. Uh, I studied up on what the military is like for a long time. And the only reason I didn't join when I was younger was, you know, in college younger was because I found this love of theology and this love of ministry. But why I came back to the Army Reserve as an option is that I love the idea of being able to serve my country when it needs me and not that being my only job. So the fact that it's part-time, that you drill once a month and you do two weeks of training in the year and otherwise you're doing other things unless they need you, in which case they'll call on you, was a huge draw to me, that I could be able to serve my country and as a civil affairs specialist, perhaps even be able to help other people in other countries, while at the same time, that not being my only role in life, really called to me. From, from a very pragmatic perspective, what is that going to look like for the next few months for you? Well, yeah, so I'll be at basic training and then what's known as AIT, which is your training of your job. So you go from a general basic training to your specific job training. And that'll be, it's hard to know how long because the coronavirus means that you have to quarantine with the army. So you don't get to just quarantine at home. They want to trust that you've actually quarantined. So you do about two weeks of quarantining at minimum, and then you do basic training, and then you go to AIT, and then you do another two weeks of quarantining. And that's, again, minimum. So it could be from around February until early August, which is what I'm hoping the length of time will be. <laughs> and, and this might be an impossible question, but... Once you're on the other side of this kind of training cycle and you're, you're in the army reserves and you're doing that work, where, what else do you hope that will combine with? Where do you see that fitting in with ministry work, home life, all that kind of stuff? Well, that's a great question. And I'm still being very open to what the possibilities of that can include it's one of those jobs in the military that is not easy to get into necessarily. And it, it's a complicated job in a lot of ways, but it's also one that is difficult to describe for civilian life. So it's one that can be applicable, but is also at the same time, not inherently applicable. So they say like, you know, it can get you other jobs, but you'd have to be able to describe it in ways that are useful for civilian life. And what it means for ministry, I think, is an open question. One of the main roles of a civil affairs specialist is persuasion, because you have to work with a local government and you have to convince them that, you know, what their interests are line up with your interests. And you have to be good at communicating. You have to be able to describe what it is that you're needing, but also be able to describe what they're needing to others. Because a lot of times, again, if you're doing disaster relief, there's a lot of back and forth that's necessary on, well, what do you need and how can we help? And what are our logistics look like? And then describing that to the people that are also gonna be doing that work from the army side of things. So I'm hoping that some of the skills I'll develop with this job will be applicable to ministry through communication, through cultural knowledge, because you will be developing other cultural knowledges outside of one's own. And it's always good to have a broader cultural knowledge, especially if you interact with people that maybe originally came from another culture or who have brought that culture to that community that you're serving in, whatever it might be, that there be an openness in working with people that have a variety of backgrounds and communicating with them, clearly. Well, it certainly sounds like it's going to be a big adventure and you know, we're going to miss you here, but I hope and trust that it's a really positive thing and we're going to look forward to hearing more as when the time is right to hear more on it. 
Yeah, I'm excited to get to that point where I can come back and not only be back, but then also be able to tell you all more. And I'm hoping to be able to visit the Trinity and Brentwood families that I have grown so close with after the pandemic and after uh, my trainings. Yeah, I think that that day is coming. It may not be here yet, but it's coming. Yeah, we're, we're travel is a possibility again. And you know, I know lots of folks are looking forward to that. Yeah, that's definitely the, you know, there are long-term things that we look forward to, and hopefully that is not one of them. Hopefully that is a short-term thing that we yeah. can look forward to. So what's something you're excited about right now? You know, it's so hard to think about anything other than basic training because it's such a long chunk of time. And so it weighs on me. And again, as I've described, I'm someone who worries about things a lot. So it's hard not to be nervous about it. But at the same time, there is a, a certain level of excitement around it, or at the very least, an interest around it. But I am excited to be able to grow as a person through it, because I think that the challenges it'll bring to me will be growing opportunity. And also things like just getting in better shape, I'm looking forward to with it, learning about my role and my job and how I can best execute those are exciting. And then of course, the coming back after the period is an exciting prospect as well. I'm glad that there is excitement there and hopefully more excitement than nervousness or dread. Yeah, I don't think so but maybe that'll change in the next couple of days. Well, I've got one last big question. Okay. And it's been something that I've been reflecting on with a lot of our guests. And that is, you know, we've talked about how, and you, you've reflected on the fact that our society is changing and the church is changing. And, and I wonder what your hope is for the church say five or 10 years from now, you know, if we were to, you know, it's 2031 and we look back over the last decade, what would be some signs that you could point to, to say, you know, we're doing okay. We've, we're doing a good job here. What, what, what's your hope? And are you asking for the specific church of Trinity or the larger Christian church? I think I would be more focused on just the, the larger church. Holistically, how would we know that, you know, that the, the body of Christ is marching in the right direction? Yeah. I think that if we could look into the future and see a church that is a little less focused on the amount of people that it has and is, is less focused on protecting its cultural power or influence, and and more focused on those two balancing weights that I described earlier of the inward change and the outer societal change. A church that is able to take both of those and create a balance between them that is healthy and productive and useful and loving, I will be very happy. A church that is concerned with improving its individuals, but does not become so inwardly reflecting that it has nothing to say or do for those that are not in it, would be a church that I would be very happy with, one that can do both things. Well, I think that's a really good concluding word and hope for us today, that, that maybe as the church we can move in that direction, a direction that seeks to bring us each individually closer to God and more have a more in-depth relationship and understanding of ourselves and our faith, and that that would also lead to outward change in our communities, that we can build a world that more closely resembles the kingdom of Christ. Well, Reed, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you taking time as you prepare for this new journey, this new adventure, and know that we wish you and Kenzie the absolute best. And if there are ways that we can be a support, please let us know. 
It's always great talking to you, Chris, so I'm just happy to be here. You've been listening to The Common Table Podcast, a ministry of Trinity Presbyterian Church. Located in Springfield, Missouri, Trinity believes everyone's story deserves to be heard. To learn more about our vision and ministry, please visit us at trinityspringfieldpcusa.org. To hear more interviews like this one, visit our website, commontablepodcast.com, and subscribe to The Common Table through your favorite podcast app. The Common Table is funded in part through a generous grant from the Creative Ministry Fund of John Calvin Presbytery. I'm your producer and host, Pastor Chris Miller, and I look forward to seeing you at the table soon. Thank you.